Hello, captives and captive friends, and welcome to episode 39 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by Legacy Specialists R&Q and presented by me, Richard Kutcher. Earlier this month, Marsh released their annual Captive Landscape Report, a piece of research which I believe is always the highlight of the calendar year in terms of understanding what is going on across the captive market and, and various regions. So, so naturally, I was keen to invite Ellen Charnley, president of Marsh Captive Solutions, back onto the pod to talk us through some of the key takeaways and share her thoughts on a range of other topics relevant to us all right now as well. And thankfully, Ellen said yes. So Ellen, welcome back to the Global Captive podcast. Thank you, Richard. Delighted to be back. So Ellen, we'll, uh, we'll come on to some of those, some of those uh, topics in a minute, but coming up in this episode, we're also going to be hearing from Gerjan Delhas. Gerjan is Corporate Insurance Manager at Unilever and will provide his views on the captive market in the Netherlands, his experience with captives and the hard market Ellen, I'm going to come on to the, the landscape report in the second half of the episode, but there are a few other areas I'd just like to, to touch upon first. When we spoke uh, this time last year in GCP 17, I believe, so 12 episodes, uh, no, 22 episodes on since then, it was only uh, six months after the JLT acquisition. Reflecting on the past 18 months, uh, what has the consolidation of that talent, headcount and and book of business uh, really brought to your Marsh captive practice? Yeah, sure. Well, time flies, I guess, doesn't it? And um, boy, I'm, mm. I, I count my uh, I count the, my chickens every day for the fact that we did that pre-COVID that integration. So um, very glad that mm. that's behind us. Um, I can't imagine doing it virtually. That would have been really quite quite challenging but yeah so we're we're now fully integrated in all of the locations and you know as as a whole the acquisition for marsh captives was relatively small um, globally um, in terms of numbers of captives numbers of colleagues etc but in certain locations you may remember I, I said that to you that in certain locations it was quite meaningful and quite material and so those were the locations that we had to focus on making sure that we had the right structure the right the right teams in place the right technology the right infrastructure etc so all of that's now behind us and now we're um, extremely strong client teams and client focus which is where we've we've really made sure that we spent most of our energy um, so we've got the best of the best, if you will, and, and been able to, um, particularly for some of our larger captives and strategic captives, bring in bigger bigger teams combining uh, Marsh talent and ex-JLT talent to create a really good global client team focus. So I think that's really where the, the, the change has come. We've also managed to upload all of the JLT legacy um, clients onto our Marsh system, you know, by their own admission, the JLT um, accounting systems were were not overly um, sophisticated, um, whereas we have this custom-made global management captive solution, GCMS, system that's that's you know purposely built and maintained by our own our own people so um, we've been able to create um much more robust reporting and um i think the xjlt colleagues have been delighted to have a system that's um, enabled them to be pretty efficient and um, produce their produce their reports and uh, and client accounts in a in a more robust way so so all good and again very glad it's all behind us the integration side of it 
Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine that would have been uh, a lot tougher in the in the kind of this distance world we're, we're currently in. I mean, obviously that that was a consolidation, and we continue to see a lot of consolidation among captive managers in the market. At the top end will be the Aon. Willis Towers. What's an acquisition when that does happen, I think, next year? We've also just seen in the last couple of weeks, uh, SRS acquired Dina or Dina, sorry, in Bermuda, and then Sogical and 2RS come together in Luxembourg. American listeners might, might not be as familiar with those two names, but they're relatively large names in Luxembourg market. How much more room do you think there is, Ellen, for this kind of consolidation? And, and how closely even do you, do you pay attention to that kind of activity? Yeah, obviously we, we pay attention to it, and, but I think there's acquisitions and acquisitions or mergers and mergers and um, the Willis Aon one who are watching, watching very closely uh, to see how, they, how they're going to handle that in this current environment, uh, two, two big powerhouses, and, and what kind of sort of fallout, if you will, will, will come from that. You know, the other ones you mentioned, I, I'm not too familiar with the, the one in Luxembourg. And then there's the SRS one that you referred to, which is a, a much, much, much smaller acquisition. So, so you know, I, I think it depends on sort of the size as to the impact it, w- it would have. But generally speaking, uh, I think there's not going to be an impact on the landscape, if you will, of, of providers. I think people fear that perhaps more than that's the reality. And I think that there's plenty of opportunities and choice, even with a smaller deck of, of providers. And I think that very often people fear that there's not. But if you if you take the the top 10 or so captive managers, I don't have the stats in front of me, but if you were to look at something like what business insurance produces every every year, um, the top 10 you know, accounts for a large proportion of the captive um, management landscape. So I don't really think you know, making, making a move to acquire two or three or, or smaller ones is going to really have an impact. Um, I think there's plenty, plenty of, of opportunity and, and choice out there for, for captive owners. As you touched upon earlier, Ellen, 2020 has, of course, turned out very differently to how we might all have imagined it. What challenges has the pandemic and and these national lockdowns posed to your actual operations of of the captive management practice? Yeah, a good question. Um, Very, very early on, we at Marsh and and, uh, we at Marsh Captive Solutions made the decision to to work from home. And um, we have... Uh, I mentioned earlier, our sort of uh, very sophisticated technology. So we were able to do that relatively seamlessly. I mean, yes, of course, we had some some challenges in certain locations with internet reception and, and all that sort of thing. And of course, the, the social challenges that people face, homeschooling and, and stuff like that and dogs barking in the background. But I think once the world got used to that kind of environment, uh, we fared very well. You know, and we're still working from home. In certain locations around the world, we've gone back to an office location to some degree but only really on a, on a must-needs basis. So um, what did it force us to do? It forced us to invest even more money on our te- more investment in our technology um, and our controls and get that working um, even better. So focusing on things like uh, efficiencies, um, what, what could we do to make our colleagues' lives easier? For example, we just globally rolled out DocuSign for all of our all of our colleagues. So now they don't have to worry about printing stuff and, and then scanning it and signing it and stuff like that. So logistically, we moved forward tenfold. We also have, have created a lot of electronic links with all of the banks that we deal with for our client accounts. So we've really focused on making, uh, making life easier for our colleagues in these unprecedented times. So technology and controls is a thing that we've really focused on. And also, I would say that uh, 
may sound a little bit cheesy, but our communication has increased and our collaboration has increased. So we spend a lot more time, of course, on Zoom, talking to our colleagues and our clients rather than and, and making that an effort, uh, a forceful, conscious effort versus um, just assuming you're going to have a chat with somebody at the water cooler in the office. So I think that that in itself has, has created a real sense of collaboration and increased teamwork that really has been a, a joy and a pleasant surprise in, in all of this. Yeah, great. Now, hearing that from from a lot of people in terms of those conscious effort, I, I'm certainly making more conscious effort to get in contact with people that I would normally bump into on Fenchurch Street or, or you know, at conferences and, and make an effort to kind of get on Zoom and, and have those chats with people. All right. So we've talked a lot about operational and, and market stuff. It'd be good to really talk about some of the, the real captive issues uh, we're, we're all facing now. And obviously, hard market is a, is an interesting time for us in the captive market. It's the first time I've experienced one, Alan, in terms of covering the, the captive industry. So it, this is all quite new to me at the moment. I'm hearing from across the board though that you know captive managers regulators uh, across different markets and other service providers that there really is a lot of new interest in captive formations i did see a story come out in the last week i think marsh have said they've formed 70 odd new captives this year already uh, correct me if i'm wrong what, what do you think is is driving this and is it just a hard market with no sign of softening or is there more to it more to it than that do you think yeah, it was um, it was seventy six um, new captives in the first half of the year compared to um, much, much smaller number last last year. I can't remember off the top of my head, but over sort of two hundred percent growth um, for wow. us. Uh, so yeah, we're, the phone's ringing off the hook, kind of thing. I've never experienced growth like this or activity like this, if you will, and inquiries and and people forming captives and people doing more with their captives, putting more premium in, into their captives. Um, you'll see from the landscape report that the, I mean, look, this was reporting on last year. And we had some crazy increased premium volumes in the captives that we manage already. So that was really even before the market was <clears throat> where it is now. So imagine what our landscape report should should tell us next year, because I think it's going to be even even more significant. But yeah, I mean, I think that <clears throat> the, the market conditions are are causing um, this predominantly. I think that's that's reasonable to say. And I think they're causing it globally. I mean, some some locations more than others, but and also uh, across all lines of business. And again, some some lines of business more, more than others. We're seeing uh, the property market driving activity for captives. We're seeing the, the, the DNO market driving significant activity for captives. And so I think it's fair to say that it is it is predominantly that. Um, I would also say that um, even, even in times of a soft market, um, we do see captive growth. And, and I don't know if you remember, Richard, I used to do a, or a couple of years ago, I did a session on captive myths. And the first myth that I put up yeah. there was that around captives only form in a hard market. And uh, I think they form more so in a harder market, but I also think they form in soft markets too. And that's because the value of a captive is not just about driving down the total cost of risk. It's about writing third-party business, creating profit engines. It's about accessing reinsurance. It's about um, evidence of insurance. It's about a whole host of things that people sometimes forget about, that there's so many so many things that a captive can do for a, for a parent organization. So I would say there's a little bit of it. There's just, just general growth anyway and the general uh, increase in interest and sophistication of, of, of companies today that, that drives captive conversations and alternative risk transfer. 
Yeah, I find it really interesting that that, that kind of obviously I, I think I'm not surprised by this incredible uh, growth of not just interest but actual formations in in this hard market. I'm not surprised by that at all. But you'd, obviously, when we've been in the soft market for so long, you know, the message I often get from consultants and managers and other service providers is, and as you said in those kind of captive myths presentation in Bermuda, I've seen you do before. You know, captives aren't just for a hard market. So is the reverse sometimes true as well that there might be clients that come to you and say. Uh, or come to their broking, uh, their broking partners and say, you know, it's my insurance rates have gone up. I need to form a captive. Sometimes might it be that actually the captive isn't the long term play, even in that situation for them. I guess every client is different, but are there times where the captive isn't always the the, the answer? Yeah, of course, absolutely, of course. And I think um, it's important to to be honest and you know think think of a longer term play um, and a time frame with a with a potential captive owner, which is what we do when we sort of have preliminary discussions or even do a feasibility study. A captive really shouldn't just be a vehicle to solve a short term problem. It should should be a long term play. It will evolve, of course, over those over a longer term, and and its value that it, pro- it provides today could be very different from the value that it provides five years from now, and which is why it's always very important to consistently review the value that the captor is providing. We, we do something that we've termed a strategic review that we typically look at every sort of three to five years or so. But yes, I mean, if, if there's a short-term need, very often a client will look at a sell option because it's quicker. For example, if they truly really need to issue a policy um, uh, or access reinsurance, um, then, then perhaps a, the Offering a, a sell solution is a is a quicker uh, solution than forming forming a full blown captive. So typically, we would talk about a longer term phased phased approach for for a captive owner, though. Well, uh, we're going to hear more from Ellen, and particularly we're going to dive into the captive landscape report in the second half. But now we are going to hear from uh, Gerjan Delhas, corporate insurance manager at Unilever. Unilever owns a captive in its home country of the Netherlands. And Gerjan began by telling me a bit about his experience with captives to date. Yeah, I've, I've been around in the captive world now for, for a bit more than nine years. Um, and my, my first introduction to the existence of captives was uh, was at the insurance department of ExxonMobil, uh, which was back then still a, still a combined paints, coatings and chemicals companies with, uh, with the headquarters in the Netherlands. And after various roles in that team, I, uh, I ended up being the captive and financial manager there, uh, also managing several, uh, several captives. After uh, almost... Seven years in ExxonMobil, I got the opportunity to move to the uh, to the corporate insurance and risk control team of uh, of Unilever, where uh, where I uh, got the role as corporate insurance manager, and part of that role also is uh, is a responsibility for uh, for the captive uh, Unilever has, and I got the opportunity to join the board of directors of the captive uh, that is domiciled in the Netherlands. So that's my current role, and and over the years, my experiences with captives uh, include. I think quite a broad range of, of topics. Of course, uh, it, it, the whole introduction of Solvency 2 and getting ready for Solvency 2, um, but also finding solutions for runoff, legacy captives, um, UK employers' liability portfolios. Um, it's been like managing global insurance programs with captive involvement directly and indirectly, but also captives in different domiciles uh, globally. 
and that has been uh, yeah that has been I think the experience I have with captives over over these years and always to always looking for opportunities to run the captive as efficient as possible so um, also a lot of experience with looking at service providers as, as an extension of the small teams that we often have in these uh, multinationals where we have to take care of the captive and the ability to um, to outsource activities that are not the core of a risk and insurance function so that has been uh, that has been my involvement in captives Gershon, I, th- I think, well, you certainly look younger than me. I think you're probably a little bit older than me. But uh, I mean, it's my first experience of a hard market. And I imagine that this may well be one of your first experiences of, of the market hardening up as such a long time in a soft market. What 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 uh, role do you view captives playing uh, in this in this hard market, which looks like it, it won't be uh, softening anytime soon? And, and how do you think this expanded role, if, if there is one, can be actioned for captives? Yeah, well, thank you for the compliment. Let's take that offline. Who's who's older? <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I definitely see that there's a that there's a role, uh, a, a bigger role for captives to play, and uh, they can, but also will play uh, an absolutely bigger role in the in the current market. It's also my first uh, my first hard market uh, I'm experiencing, and uh, well, I think captive owners and captive managers. We should have we should have prepared us for this, um, and and I definitely feel most of the captive owners will have, um, and and it shouldn't be a sort of a panic reaction, um, and and what I mean with that is that the way you've set your captive strategy and the way that you manage the captive, it should should already be as such that that it. Pre- prepares you to adapt easily to changing circumstances, whether that are changes in the market, like now, hard market and soft market, or or maybe at the side of a policyholder or your, uh, the captive owner, um, for instance, changes in risk profile due to M&A activity or in the size of the company or a different risk risk appetite. So it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be an, uh, a, a new element. It should have been something we've already been considering. And an example of that, uh, I've been managing that at least through, through uh, recent years, is to include ORSA scenarios, for instance, um, that already consider a, a new line of business in your captive or an increased retention size and what the effects of it are for uh, for the capital requirements within the captive. Um, so that, that is just an example of how you could have prepared for this, uh, this market and, and that allows you to easily yeah go go with the circumstances and, and adapt your uh, your captive uh, um, and and use it to the to the most broadest extent possible and of course to be able to do so as, as a risk and insurance function you you have to have your internal and external network uh, in place um, to be able to set up the right scenarios and well for us that was that, that was um, managing volatility etc um, and that are the key I think the key purposes of having a captive is, is that you have flexibility in managing volatility in the insurance market um, and also it, it gives you a, a bigger access to the commercial and reinsurance market so it, it should be part of your strategy rather than suddenly with an with a, I think this hard market games pretty quickly then all suddenly have to make changes to that. Yeah, interesting, uh, Gershon. I like the the process you talked through in terms of being prepared for the hard market. I think that's a, a really good lesson uh, some people may have learned if they if they hadn't been prepared. And I just want to clarify for listeners: you mentioned the ORSA for our US listeners that might not so be uh, might not be as familiar with the Solvency Two terminology in Europe. That ORSA is own risk self assessment solvent solvency assessment. Sorry, that's correct, is it, Gershon? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, that's a forward-looking assessment on on uh, where you have to define certain scenarios, 
and 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 forward assess them what the impact it is it has on on your captive. Brilliant. So um, coming coming closer to home then, Gershan, you mentioned obviously that uh, the Unilever captive you work with is is in the Netherlands. Um, we've seen over recent years uh, uh, some uh, domestications from other domiciles back into Netherlands and some other new captives being formed in the Netherlands. I think there's about around 10 or just less than 10 captives in the Netherlands, you might correct me. How, how do you assess the, the attitudes towards captives in the Netherlands, uh, both from the the, the 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 captive owner or risk or insurance buyer perspective, but also from kind of uh, internal market uh, perspective, and and is there an active captive community in the country? Yeah, I think you were right. We're just just under ten, uh, if I uh, if I count them all, uh, which says enough that I can count them uh, by heart. Um, about the size of the community, um, it, it's only a limited number of captives, so we all most of us know each other. And uh, I think going back to, to the start of Solvency 2, um, we started to share information between a few of these captives. Um, and, and, and that were three captives where we had a lot of similarities in, in the way of operating, uh, same line of business with global programs, for instance, etc. And, and we worked together in setting up frameworks for several reports like, like the RSR and the SFCR. Um, so, so regulatory solvency reports that are, and um, and we learned from each other's governance policies where we exchanged uh, examples. So, so that helped uh, a lot. Um, and ever since we have kept the platform in place, uh, and we are meeting uh, a few times a year, in which we yeah, exchange knowledge and all kind of, of captive-related business quite uh, quite openly. I can say um, f- from a from a regulatory perspective, um, yeah, there's there's a good and open connection with the regulator. Um, uh, in, in the Netherlands, we don't have a separate captive clause from a regulatory perspective. We are being regulated uh, within the class of, of, of medium and smaller insurance uh, companies. Um, but I think they are approaching us proportionally, um, uh, which is in line with the, with the risk profile of, uh, of a captive. And that results in uh, um, questionnaires or reports that are, uh, are well, not, not required for us or we can be exempt from certain reports uh, if, we, if we prefer. And we can uh, we can request that, and and that also I think is partially a result of the joint joint efforts of the of the of the three captives I was referring to earlier, where we also proactively engage with the regulator on all kind of topics, um, sometimes together, sometimes in sometimes individually. Uh, but we had a, we we build an open and and and, and transparent relationship with uh, with the regulator. I think it was about three or four years ago where we had the first time. Uh, where we sat together with all captive owners who wanted to in the Netherlands and, and the regulator. And we sat in, in one room on the same table that was still allowed by then. Uh, that, that was really valuable for both sides. So that has now became, become an, an, an annual recurring meeting where, where the regulator meets all captive owners and shares changes in regulation or requests that will come. And captive owners can ask questions and, and we benefit all from that. So that that is, uh, I think, a good uh, good example of, of how the how the captive community in the Netherlands works, uh, which is which is uh, uh, driven by a, by a working group uh, of captives um, that is part of the NADIM, the Dutch Association for Risk and Insurance Managers. So that drives actually the meetings and uh, and the fact that we that we meet regularly with each other.
Yeah, really interesting, uh, Gershan, and good to hear that there is that uh, community for one, but also that there is that relative degree of openness from the regulator to have that kind of conversation on an annual basis with owners to see uh, see what the kind of issues there might might or might not be. I guess combining th- those last two questions about the hard market and the community, do you get any indication that we could see more captives formed? in the Netherlands uh, from you know, other risk uh, managers that you know? Uh, do you think they're in this hard market, you might see some some new captives formed within the Netherlands by Dutch companies? If, if I make a sort of separation there between uh, maybe more, in my, my own words, a traditional captive and, and maybe alternative captive vehicles, um, I, I've spoken with some of my peers in, in recent months and years, yeah, to the best of my knowledge, there hasn't been a new traditional captive recently. Most arguments uh, that, that I hear are, are the operational work uh, that comes uh, comes with having, having a captive. That, that is a major element of not proceeding. Yeah, I think the current market circumstances also in the Netherlands, uh, I know that some of, some of the peers and some of the companies here are considering a, a more alternative captive vehicle, so a PCC or a renter captive, with, and, I, and I don't mean anything bad with a, with a traditional or, or, or alternative captive vehicle, but just to, um, to make a sort of distinction. Um, I, I know that some of uh, some of the companies are considering it. Uh, I, I know in, in recent year uh, one or two have been uh, have been formed like that. So so I f- yeah I feel and I, I know that we sh- we will see a growth maybe not per se in, in in captive companies domiciled in the Netherlands and, and, and regulated in the Netherlands, but rather than in Dutch companies having a, a having a, an alternative captive vehicle not based in the Netherlands. Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat, and I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities. Yes, Richard, it is. You don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent, or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So what are the different options? Well, you can execute a lost portfolio transfer, which is a reinsurance structure, undertake an insurance business transfer enter into novation or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions. And R&Q has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. R&Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. Welcome back to the Global Captive Podcast, where I am joined by Ellen Charnley, president of Marsh Captive Solutions. Ellen, one of the areas the report delves into, and I remember you and Michael Sericchio actually referencing it in one of your Marsh Captive Upside webcasts earlier this year, is the liquidity of captives and how that can be used to the, the parent's advantage, particularly in uncertain economic times such as these. The landscape report shows Marsh managed captives have $391.4 billion in assets under management, including $113 billion in capital and surplus. How have you seen captives make use of that capital and surplus to, to help their parent organizations? Yeah, there's some quite big numbers there. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, in the last six months, we've we've helped 
companies that are in a liquidity crisis, which includes many of them, of course, extract um, approximately $3 billion um, from their from their surplus in the forms of dividends and, and parental loans. So the captives have um, really shown their true colors in this time of crisis as a, as a vehicle to, to truly help organizations. And I can safely say that a large proportion of them have already been paid back. So there's been a short-term wow. uh, solution to, to get cash back to the parent, which, I mean, $3 billion, that's that's quite colossal. And and often often companies, I, I would say I often get the, the, the discussion with parent organizations where they question the surplus buildup. Um, you know, if you think about it, the, the objective of a captive is, is preservation of capital and to pay claims. And often they build up surplus over time, particularly if actuaries um, are quite conservative, which they generally are. So they, they, they tend to overestimate premiums against losses, which is which is obvious and, and hopeful, hopefully that they do that to build up surplus. So often I get the question, well, what what should we do with that surplus? Um, and the answer the answer is, you know, can be can be quite lengthy, and um, and we often do sort of reports and studies for for clients to to get specific about it. But generally, they can you know they can do dividends and loans. They can increase coverage that they're writing, increase limits, um, which are in a in a challenging commercial market might be extremely helpful to them. Um, they can even incentivize uh, operating divisions by giving premium credits or premium holidays for the future for good loss behavior. So having surplus in a captive provides a risk manager or a treasurer or a CFO with a great tool to allow them to truly manage their, their risk. Um, and it's, uh, it's a nice position to be in. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it was a really nice area to report, I thought, and it went into some detail. I think it hadn't been there before, and you know, I I find those bits really interesting because it just gives you that extra level of detail. And another area of detail that the report has is on on third party risk and some interesting numbers there. And it stood out to me for a number of reasons. One, it's something we've talked about for a while. But two, we had uh, we had Zach Finn, uh, Professor Zach Finn of Butler University, co-hosting our last episode, GCP 38. And he said that as the insurance market hardens and captives consider taking on higher retentions or finance some of these you know, so-called uninsurable risks, uh, as the insurance market are sometimes labeling them now, it may encourage captives to also consider writing more third-party risk to help fund those new lines because, of course, higher retentions and, and new lines will, will need greater capital. The, the 2020 Captive Landscape Report tells us that there was $1.2 billion rise in third-party risk premium going through your uh, book of captives in 2019. What do you think is motivating this, uh, this increase in third-party premium? Is it related to the hard market at all, and what did you think of those kind of observations from from Zach Finn? Uh, you know, I, I think I probably wouldn't have thought it was related to the to the commercial market um, on first, but but he makes a good point, and um, it, it could it could be driving some of it. I think for us, it, it was another big 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 jump uh, in premium volume, and I think more what's caused it more is is perhaps the evolution and sophistication of some of the tech companies that have been forming, the, the startup companies that have been forming and, and those that have been around for, for a while developing customer-based platforms or distribution platforms. So allowing them to reach customers, employees, or contractors in a in a much easier way than they have in the past. And, and insurance is a natural bolt-on to that. So, so some of our growth has come from brand new companies that have started up that, that see insurance as, a, as another sticky 
a connection to a customer base that they're offering something else to. So I think I think it's more to do with that for us at least than a, than a direct comparison of the of the, of the challenging market out there. But you could also say that the challenging market's going to affect um, potentially consumers or employees at some point. And so costs of um, voluntary benefits may may increase or other other consumer type insurances, uh, ho- homeowners insurance could increase. I don't know that we've really seen that yet, but that could happen. And if that does happen, then companies are going to want to form captives and, and have a go at it themselves and see if they can offer better rates to create create stickiness with customers and, and take a piece of the pie. So I think it, it is connected, but I'm not sure it's, of course, not as as directly connected as, as a single parent captive growth riding traditional risk. Yeah, absolutely. I think you'd probably expect if there was a connection to that to materialize in the future rather than it to have been already showing up in, in kind of numbers from from, from last year and, and this year. Um, a lot of the information in the report just last year, and for me, it really only reinforces the theory that, that captives, are, captives only become more sophisticated over time. Of course, we do see captive closures for, for various reasons. That does happen. But captives that continue to exist seem to be for kind of more sophisticated. Is the pandemic, do you think, the resulting economic volatility and hard market, is that making a perfect storm to, to really drive captive innovation to the next level? And, and should the commercial market be concerned by this increasing strength of what's, you know, what I quite like to call super captives? Um, well, I think there's always going to be a place for uh, alternative risk transfer vehicles. And there's always going to be a place for a traditional markets. So I don't think the commercial market would be concerned about the activity in the captive space is still uh, a small industry compared to, to the, the larger traditional industry. But, but I do think the captive industry will continue to, to grow um, and innovate. You know, just in the last few years, we've seen changes in, in what captives write, coverages that they write. We will see changes in how, how captives are administered and operated in terms of developments in technology. Um, you know, many of the regulators are, are also looking at developments in technology in order to create efficiencies and, and, and cope with a, a bigger volume. So I think that we'll see a lot a lot more of that. I'm not entirely sure that we'll we'll see too many super captors because there's only so many, you know, large mm-hmm. Yeah. Fortune 500 type companies out there in, in the world. And I, I think where the, where the growth in the industry is going to come from actually is in the, on the other side of the scale when the smaller companies that, that actually say, well, why, why, why shouldn't I retain some risk myself? Why shouldn't I um, form a captive? So I think my guess is that captives will be available for a wider span of, of companies versus seeing super captives sort of wipe out the commercial market. Okay, yeah. Well, I wasn't. I wasn't sure. I was expecting them to wipe out the commercial market, but I do think. I, I, obviously, I would love them to personally, as someone who's very <laughs> invested in captives. Uh, but uh, I do think it's interesting to see as they become more sophisticated. You know, what kinds of what kind of services they might have previously relied on insurers for, which they can maybe actually fund themselves. Um, but that that's that's kind of maybe another conversation for another day. Um, Ella, that's all we've got time for today. But it's been fantastic to uh, to have you on again. And I'd like to say thank you to uh, Gershan Delhas of Unilever as well. And, and to you, Ellen, uh, thanks for coming back onto the pod. Thanks for having me. It's been, uh, been my pleasure. No music choice this time.
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> As ever, uh, uh, if you are new to the Global Captive podcast and want to explore our back catalogue or make sure you don't miss any future episodes, the best way to do that is to subscribe to our stream on any podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and now even Amazon Music. So if you've got an Alexa or Echo device, just search or ask for Global Captive podcast. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.